G'day everyone. My name's Marshall. If I haven't met you, it's good to see you all here this afternoon. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Um, Father God, uh, thank you that you speak to us through your Word. You give it to us for our instruction, our encouragement, and uh, to spur us on to love and good works. Um, Father, help us today as we look at your Word to uh, look at this chapter, which on the face of it is a little bit tricky to work out what it's about. Um, but we pray that you would uh, speak to us through your spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of the tragedy of the Christchurch massacre on March 15 this year, there have been a lot of stories of heroism that have emerged. One of those stories is the story of Abdul Aziz. He was a worshipper. Uh, in the second mosque, not the first one that uh, Brenton Tarrant went to. He was an immigrant from Afghanistan. And he was, after Brenton Tarrant came from killing people at the Masjid al-Nur mosque, he went to the nearby Linwood Mosque. And it was in the Linwood Mosque that Abdul Aziz was there worshipping. He saw Tarrant pull out a gun and start to open fire. His response was to grab a credit card machine to use as a makeshift weapon and to charge at Tarrant. Tarrant shot at him, and this was in the car park outside. Aziz had to duck behind cars to dodge bullets. Aziz, he also grabbed a gun that Tarrant had dropped, but at the time he didn't know it was out of bullets. Aziz said later, I was screaming at the guy, come over here, come over here. I just wanted to put the focus on me. He did that so that others could be saved. Aziz then followed Tehran into the mosque and confronted him. When Tehran saw that he had a gun, didn't know that it was out of bullets, he, he ran away from him. He retreated back to his car, he drove away and another catastrophe was averted. Through his action, Abdulaziz had saved nearly a hundred worshippers in that mosque. A true hero, and, and we rightly remember him and his actions and people like him. So often in disasters like the Christchurch massacre, a handful of people stand up in extraordinary ways and with extraordinary acts of bravery and self-sacrifice. But there's another type of heroism as well. Not extraordinary. Not the sort that grabs the headlines. It's not marked by a momentary decision to throw yourself in front of a gun or to dive into dangerous water to rescue someone. This type of heroism is ongoing heroism. An everyday heroism. Courage and perseverance in the mundane day-by-day -day decisions of life. What I'm talking about is being an ordinary hero in following Jesus. Living out our faith in the everyday. And that, that's what Paul is talking about in this chapter, chapter 16. It's how Paul answers the question that we might ask as we come from the end of fi the chapter 15 to chapter 16. Remember, if you were here for the last couple of weeks, chapter 15, in chapter 15, Paul 
has come to the climax, really, of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians with a wonderful message of Jesus defeated, defeating death and being resurrected with a new and perfect body. And from that, saying that that is our future as well. Our future is to have perfected bodies, to be with Jesus forever. From that wonderful high point, we might ask, so how do we respond? How do we then live in the light of the resurrection? Well, Paul answers that question in this chapter, chapter 16. We respond to that by living the life of an ordinary hero, being courageous and faithful in the everyday, ordinary details of our lives. And we'll see today in our use of money, in the way that we submit to authority, in the way that we treat one another. They're the ways, among others, that we to live our lives as ordinary heroes. So Paul starts off in our first section, in, uh, in, chapters one, in verses 1 to 4, he talks about being generous. He's talking about a collection that is arranged with the church. This is a project that Paul is organising with not only the Corinthian church but with other churches as well. We see uh, in verse 1 that he has been uh, arranging this collection with churches in the province of Galatia as well. And we find out from other places that what Paul is doing is to collect money for the church in Jerusalem which is in the grip of a severe famine and is severely tested, it's severely poor. Look at what Paul is urging the Corinthians to do in verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So what Paul is doing is saying, I want you to do more than just pass the hat around one Sunday at church. It's to be more than just pulling out your loose change that you happen to have in your pocket. This is organised planned giving that Paul is asking the Corinthians to do. Planned giving over an extended period of time. Paul is wanting the church to be generous, not just in a spontaneous way, but to set money aside each week so that the end result is a pretty substantial sum of money to be sent back to the Jerusalem church. Now remember the context of this passage. This very practical instruction for the church to dig deeper into their pockets comes hot on the heels of that great chapter on the resurrection, doesn't it? It's no accident that Paul is putting this passage here. He's answering the question, so how do we live in the light of the resurrection? In the light of Jesus conquering death. How do we respond to the reality of our future resurrected, perfected bodies living for eternity with Jesus? We are to respond with our hip pocket. We are to open our hands and to give freely. The magnificent truth of the resurrection needs to affect us in their everyday plans and decisions that we make. Paul many times in his letters talks about his concern for the poor. 
And the appropriate response for us to God's kindness and forgiveness and generosity to us is to be generous and kind to others with our finances and in other ways too. Not just to pull out our loose change when we, when we happen to see someone in need, but like Paul urges the Corinthians, to budget, to be generous, to plan, to set aside money, to make it part of our way of life, to, to, to give money for the work of the gospel in church regularly each Sunday, to support missionaries like Carrie and Heidi who are about to get ready to go to North Africa, to give to the poor through Christian organisations like Tear and World Vision. Well, Paul moves on to talk about his plans to come back to Corinth to visit in verses 5 to 9. He makes it clear that his plans are based on kingdom priorities, that is, on God's priorities. He says he may come for a while or perhaps spend the winter with them. Look at verse 6 with me. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul's talking about the Corinthians helping him practically, financially and probably loading him up with food and supplies before he goes on his journey. Paul says it as if it's an expectation that of course they're going to help him. That's because it was. It was an expectation. Of course these followers of Jesus would support those who are being sent out doing Christian work. It's the same principle, isn't it, that we've just been talking about, being generous and open-handed. Be generous with the poor and be generous in supporting God's work. A number of times in the New Testament, Paul and others talk about the importance of supporting those who are doing God's work, people in full-time Christian ministry. It's a normal expectation for most churches today to support their pastors. But just as important is to support those that we're sending out. Those we send to do mission work, both, both overseas and in Australia. At SWEC, as I mentioned before, we're about to send the Chung family. There's also an opportunity to get to behind Ivan's mission to Bali and then later on in the year, John's mission to Vietnam. Kerry and Heidi have been encouraging us to pray for the people of North Africa who have so little opportunity to hear about Jesus. And that's so important because we're in partnership with the Chungs as a family. And an equally important aspect of that partnership is that we send Kerry and Heidi well, that we are generous with our support and faithful in our prayers. That's our responsibility as a sending church. It's not the job of pioneers who are their, their, their mission agency. It's our job, being generous and open-handed because Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, Paul then changes tack to talk about why he's not coming to Corinth. They expected him perhaps before now, so he's explaining why he's...
So Paul changes tack, um, talk about why he's not coming to, um, to Corinth. Um, and he talks about an effective work has opened up to me and there are many who oppose me. The work he's talking about... Thanks, Alan. Hello? No. Yeah, it's working. Oh, I didn't get right. No. Oh, I got a joke they could tell or something. <laughs> 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 this is about Jesus. And starting the church at Ephesus, what we might call church planting. And it's interesting that he adds the point that with that opportunity comes opposition. It's interesting that he adds that. The way that Paul says that, it's almost as if the opposition is part of the reason that he's staying. Paul's not making plans based on his own desires. It's not because it's a comfortable place to live that he's staying there. He's not holidaying in Ephesus. He's not staying there because of the great climate. He's not making plans based on his own comfort. Do you ever hear people um, ask, being asked why they live in a certain place? Um, I'm sure people come to, to Bankstown because of the lifestyle, right? Um, but very often that's, that's the answer that people give, isn't it? Um, on the radio and other places, I often hear people talk about going from the city to the country and, and they often explain it in terms of lifestyle choices um, because uh, it, it's a better view or a better environment, better place to bring up the kids or they don't have to work as hard or the community is better, something like that. But that's not something Paul would have said. It's not a lifestyle choice for Paul to stay in Ephesus. Back in chapter 15, verse 32, he says that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. This isn't a comfortable place to be. His life was put in danger because of the choices that he made to stay there to do Christian work. It's a kingdom choice based on God's priorities. He was convinced that the most effective strategic place for him to be at that time was in Ephesus. And that came ahead of comfort, lifestyle, personal preference. Once again, how does Paul respond to the reality of the resurrection? He does it by making decisions in his everyday life based on putting God's fir God first, putting his kingdom first. This seems a very ordinary, mundane chapter and in some ways, on first glance, it's hard to know what to make of it. It seems to be a bit of a hodgepodge of different details of Paul kind of tying up loose ends. But if we scratch beneath the surface, we see a picture of what it's like to live with Jesus as king in our everyday lives. Because we now know that he is king who has risen from the dead and he reigns over all powers and all authorities. This is a picture of how to live as an ordinary hero, in our day-to-day -day planning, in how we decide to use money, where we decide to live. Oh, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know why I'm still wearing that. <laughs> 
I wonder what sort of things have influenced where you live. Are you influenced by lifestyle choices? Um, or, or is it more for convenience? I suspect for many of us, it's um, either convenience to, to work or, or uni or whatever, or by necessity, perhaps it's financial necessity. Um, perhaps it's an affordable place to live. Or perhaps you're still living with parents. That, and that can be an economic decision as well because we can't afford to move out. So I know we often don't get much of a choice in where we live, but if you do or, or if you're considering moving, I wonder what's influencing your thought about where you might live. If I live in this suburb, I'll be closer to church and have more time for ministry or I'll be in a better position to get to know my neighbours and to look for opportunities to share my faith with them. And then, then we could also ask the same question about our job, about uh, maybe you're in a, you, at the moment you're thinking about uh, a career or what job you might do or changing jobs. What influences that decision to become a physio or a teacher? Do I have kingdom priorities in choosing what sort of job I look for or where I'm going to live? Well, Paul then changes the focus from his plans uh, to Timothy, who works with Paul. In the next section, verses 10 to 11, no. in verses 10 to 11, he urges the church to submit to Timothy and to those in authority with him because they are doing God's work, as Paul is. Part of the point is similar to what Paul was just talking about earlier, looking after those who are doing God's work. So verse 11, he says that no one should refuse to accept Timothy. So show him hospitality, look after him, because he's here doing God's work. But there's also another dimension to what, uh, Timothy, what Paul is saying. The background to this section is the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. For those of you who were here last year, you may remember that the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, it becomes very clear that there's a significant number of people who oppose Paul. For whatever reason, they, they don't like his leadership and they're against him. Probably part of the reason for Timothy coming is to see, is to, see to it that the church puts into practice what Paul is writing about in this letter. So that the damage done by those that opposition to Paul is undone and, and Timothy helps put things right. But things are still pretty tense with Paul. So Paul feels the need to give them a bit of a warning that they really need to listen to Timothy. They really need to put into practice what he's saying. So accepting him means doing just that, listening to what he says, but it also means showing him hospitality looking after him, treating him well. Then jump down to verses 15 and 18 and Paul talks about accepting another group of people and submit to them also. So we hear about Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus who are another group of people doing God's work, verse 16. It's likely that they were co-workers of Paul in Corinth. 
in a sense, they are Paul's representatives when he is away from the church. They carry on his work. They may be leaders in the church and that's why the Corinthians are told to submit to them. And again, like Timothy, Paul, Paul feels the need to give the church a bit of a prod to support these people. Perhaps they're a bit reluctant to do that, but he's encouraging them, urging them to get behind them. Get over the bad feelings they may still have towards Paul and support those who continue on in the work. Have a look at verse 15 with me. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. And then verse 18... I'll read from 17. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what is lacking from you. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. As God's people, how do we respond to the truth of the resurrection? By faithfully submitting to those in authority. Not because they themselves are great leaders, but because they are doing God's work. Submitting to them means submitting to God. That's a message that's not always popular, is it? It's not always easy to hear. It wasn't for the Corinthians, and that's why Paul has to spend so much time twisting their arms, persuading them to do what he says. Submitting to them to, to um, Paul, sorry, wasn't a high priority for the Corinthian church. And it can be hard for us as well sometimes, can't it? As Aussies, we, we, we're often anti-authoritarian. It doesn't come naturally to do what we're told. Submitting takes humility. But often we're proud. I'm proud. Often I think I know best and so... I don't want to do, I want to do things my way rather than the way someone tells me to. But the cost of not submitting is high. That's what happened with the Corinthian church. They didn't listen to Paul and the other leaders and the result was division and fighting and all sorts of problems. Because a bunch of individuals thought that they knew best, and what they wanted to do was more important than submitting for the good of the whole church. Now, I want to say, I don't think we have a huge problem of not submitting at SWEC, I'm pleased to say. But there might be times when you don't agree with a decision or, uh, that the board makes or by the elders or, or the pastors. Submitting doesn't mean rolling over and, and just accepting everything everyone says without... Um, without a whimper. We want to make decisions as a church together in consultation. We, we want to see everyone happy as far as, it, as we're able to. We want to hear from you if you're not happy. The elders and pastors, we want to do everything we can to accommodate your concerns. But still, there will be times at the end of the day in a church our size, when some people aren't going to be happy. That, that's the reality. And if you're feeling left feeling less than satisfied with the decision, I guess you have two 
two ways that you can go. One is that you can say, okay, I'm not totally happy with that decision, but I, I'm willing to submit. I'll go along with that decision. Or you can choose to undermine that decision by gossiping, creating discontent. And that's the path many in the Corinthian church took. And it was disastrous. Now, let, let me make it clear that uh, I, I'm not addressing any situation I'm aware of at SWEC. As I said, I'm not aware of uh, not submitting being, being an issue. Um, so I'm not taking a swipe at anyone here. I just give this example because I've seen so often in other churches how it does become an issue. Uh, how, how, it, how, how easily uh, it becomes an issue when people aren't happy with what their leaders are doing. The way that we submit to those in authority is a reflection of the way we think of God and whether or not we're prepared to sit under his kingship. Submit to those over us as a response to the resurrection. And finally, my last point is be an ordinary hero in our everyday lives. Paul sandwiches a little phrase in the middle of all these instructions to the Corinthians that I think is the key verse to the whole chapter, verse 13. Let's look at it together. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. It's the language of heroic action, isn't it? You can imagine a leader saying it before a time of crisis, some great battle on the horizon or, or, or some, some great disaster that's pending and rallying the troops to stand firm, be courageous, be on your guard. In fact, it's quite similar to the words that God gave Joshua back in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament before the Israelites went in and took the promised land. God told Joshua to be courageous, be strong and courageous. Only here it's not a time of crisis. It's Monday to Friday at the office, at uni. It's a normal Sunday at church, just like any other Sunday. Paul is saying to be on your guard, stand firm and show courage in your everyday lives. Be ordinary heroes. And notice that this comes right before the passage on submitting to these leaders that we've just looked at. What Paul seems to be doing here is saying, not just talking about Stephanus and Fortunatus as leaders who you have to submit to, he's also holding them up as examples of ordinary heroes. Look at their lives. See how they live. And model your lives on them and live like them also. Submitting is also used in this sense of doing what they do, follow their example. How do they live? Verse 16, they join in God's work and labour at it. They slog away faithfully in ministry. Verse 18, they refreshed Paul's spirit and refreshed the Corinthians as well. They go about encouraging people and building them up. 
That's what it means to be courageous and to stand firm in your faith. They probably didn't have a spectacular ministry. They weren't famous. As far as I know, this is the only place that Stephanus and Fortunatus are mentioned in the Bible. Stephanus probably wasn't a Billy Graham. There aren't any St. Fortunatus churches named after Fortunatus. We're talking about being faithful and slogging away in ordinary, everyday ways. Choosing to use their money for God's work. Being generous. Praying. Putting their arm on the shoulder of someone who needs encouragement. Stuff that that perhaps no one sees, that they don't get any any recognition for. Unspectacular, ordinary ways. And isn't that what being a Christian for us, 99% of the time is like? Unspectacular. Coming to church, Sunday in, Sunday out. Going to CGs, Wednesday night. Talking to that friend who's been struggling. Struggling ourselves to find time and energy to read the Bible before we have to go to work or to pray. We might not think of it that way, but living faithfully day by day, standing firm in our faith, it takes courage. We need to be strong. And so Paul's word to you today, if you're doing that, is well done. Keep it up. Keep on going. Don't give up. But maybe we're a bit like the Corinthians. Maybe we need a bit of a reminder, a bit of a spur along. There are times when I find it hard to open my Bible. It can seem dry. It can seem irrelevant to the pressures I'm facing with my family or at work. Or maybe you're feeling discouraged. Maybe disappointed with God. Unanswered prayer. Illness. Some issue in your wife that's weighing so heavily on you that it's hard to see a way out. I know from experience that when I've been in that place, it's almost impossible to imagine how I can be an encouragement to others and how I can give. I want to be careful what I say if you are in that place because I don't think it helps just to be told to be courageous and pull yourself up. But what I do want to say is try to hear what Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians. Remember where chapter 16 comes it comes after chapter 15 where Jesus has put things right with his resurrection he has defeated sin and death and suffering and sickness he has conquered death and every power that there is and he knows where you are now He's big enough to hold on to you. You may not feel courageous, but trust God not to let you go.
So perhaps for you, being an ordinary hero just means holding on, not letting go. Believing that God is there in the mess. Or for you it may mean deciding to use your money in ways that are radically different to the world. Going against your your family heritage and all you've been told about investing for your own future and deciding to be radically generous with your money. Open-handed. Being an ordinary, ordinary hero may mean giving up comfort and security and deciding to work part-time or to take a demotion even so that you work less hours and have more time for ministry. Whatever it looks like for you. If you take seriously the reality that Jesus has defeated death and risen as king forever, it will change the way you live day by day, moment by moment. Amen.